This is Monster Manual Mash. This is a podcast where we get into the 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons Monster Manual, and we go entry by entry, creature by creature, talking about the text as presented in the book. What is it supposed to make you feel? How are you supposed to use these monsters? How can you use them better? Uh, Where do they come from in myth and religion and history and the perverted imaginations of a bunch of basement dwellers of the 70s and 80s and everything in between? We use armchair psychology. We look at math. We look at other people's work. I look on Wikipedia. I pretend that I knew it already. And... I think that's a pretty well-rounded summary. Did yeah. I miss anything? Well, uh, who who are you? Oh, yeah. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. And together we are talking Monster Manual Mash episode 50. Galeb... I already flubbed it. There's no way to pronounce this right. Galeb Dewar. Galeb Dewar. Yeah, I think it's Galeb Dewar. That's that's what I would say. It might be Galebdur, but um, I don't know. Galeb Galebdur, yeah. Um, I don't no know enough pro- about like what what that H is doing linguistically there. Like yeah, I, it is. Uh, yeah. Neither does the person who wrote it, which we'll get into later. But um, it's kind of a Lord Lordsies Ringsies thing, right? Kazadun, right? Yeah. Galebdur. Um, because it's a it's a made up word. There's no uh, there's no lineage. It's just a, a fantasy. It's Klingon, basically. <laughs> so this guy is he's a little rock boy. Not to yeah. gender it them. He's a little rock, but it's hard not to when he's a little rock, little rock guy, I, little rock friend. Yeah, he's a little rock guy. Um, and like I don't know when when it comes to monsters and critters and like and animals and stuff too i feel like like i could feel like if we're talking about a galeb doer like they're a little rock guy i feel like when when you when you yeah. got little monsters guy is is it's i i like to think of guys being like an ungendered i think i think guy, guy is gender neutral i think you're right yeah. and this is definitely a little guy um possibly a unit yeah according to the book it is a boulder-like creature with stumpy rock arms and legs. Powerful spellcasters can summon them from the plane of Earth, and they can also form naturally in places touched by that plane. Imbued with greater intelligence than other elementals, so it can better assess threats and communicate. Paragraph 1. Stone Guardian. No aging or sustenance, so for some they make an ideal guardian. Powerful druids may, for instance, charge a Galebdur with protecting a magic circle or sacred hilltop. You know those druids, they love hilltops. Um, it also says underground tomb or wizard's tower. So they're not just limited to uh, magic hippies. Yeah, as long as there's a spellcaster and some kind of elevation. Yeah, up or down. Yeah. It can make itself look like a boulder and sit there for years at a time. They are permanently bound to the material plane, so if it dies, it dies and does, doesn't return to the elemental plane of Earth, which is very different from uh, elementals. They have excellent memory, and they like to help non-threatening creatures. And the second and final paragraph, Stone Connection. 
It becomes one with surroundings and imbues other rocks with a semblance of life. In effect, that makes it animate two boulders and it flings them around to scare or attack intruders. And the, uh, the Galeb Dur itself, uh, its tactic is to roll into a little ball and roll downhill at enemies. And that's it. That's the little guy. That's the whole thing here. Yeah, he's a rock guy. He's a rock guy. Um, but he's a rock guy that's been around since 82. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's something uh, about this little guy that makes people want to hang out with him for 40 years. So stat-wise, it's just like he's a medium humanoid, so he's actually pretty big. Like, I, I see that picture, and I imagine him as, like, a little two-foot, uh... Yeah. I guess, like, knowing that he's medium, though, it's, like, so is a dwarf, so we could have, like, the same dimensions as a dwarf. Because dwarves are, like, medium, they're, they're short, too, but they're, like, they're sturdy, yeah. you know? So this yeah. guy is also sturdy. Yeah. It's, like, a total uh, volume, regardless yeah. of uh, shape or something. It has a specific speed for when it rolls downhill, which I really appreciate. <laughs> oh, yeah. Which, again, I'm really kind of enamored with uh, these things. that They don't turn up very often, but I like unique elements in a, uh, in a stat block. Because no one else has a speed for rolling downhill. But you're, these guys are going to be doing a lot of rolling downhill, and it is helpful to know what that speed is, because it's going to come up. And the attack, uh, it basically doubles the damage dice on a successful hit. And the boulders that it animates, um, they have the same stats as the Galeb Dur, but with, uh, like, no, no intelligence or one intelligence or something. And they can't animate other boulders. Yeah. I do, I do, I do like it. Uh, it's a little rock guy, and it can make even smaller rocks into more little rock guys. Like, I, I, I want its animated boulders to, like, also kind of look like it, too you know yeah like unfinished versions so this guy um they kind of lay it out pretty simply about what they're supposed to do they guard things they make ideal guardians but you can interact with them because they like to help non-threatening creatures so this is a good like test for the pcs to find out how shitty they are possibly <laughs> I think it's kind of interesting that they are uh, explicitly more, they're given more personality, greater intelligence. So they're not yeah. just simply an element or an elemental that is just like a animated version of some uh, elements, you know, they have their own thing going on. And if it dies, it, it dies. Like they're, they are material creatures. Yeah. And they, all of their, like, their intelligence, wisdom, and charisma, like, their wisdom is a little bit higher. It's 12, but their intelligent charisma is, like, 11. It's a zero modifier. So they're basically, in terms of, like, their personality stats and abilities, right on par with, like, a commoner. They're a little bit more wise because they're, 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 you know, beings of nature and everything. But they're as smart as, like, a, as, like, a regular person. And they're also as strong and tough with their strength and constitution being 20 as a person could possibly be, which makes sense than being as gone. the strongest person who ever lived. It makes them very sympathetic. Yeah. And it makes you maybe, depending on how you as a DM present them, um, if you like play up their cuteness or their, their cheeb factor. Yeah. 
make players feel bad for going against them. Or it could just be like a fight. Seems like it could go either way. Yeah. And I, I, it, I, it's one of those, like, it really depends on the context, right? Like, who made them and why? What are they guarding? Like, what kind of place are they in? If, like, you go up to, like, oh, hey, we got it. Let's, let's, let's climb this tree and some rock guys, some boulders around the bit of the tree get up and they're little dudes and, like, hold up their hands to stop. You know, depending on the party, but like a lot of people are like, oh, these little guys. Okay, well, I don't want to mess with them. Like they're they're telling us to stop. But if you're in a dungeon, you know, and there's a there's a there's a there's a chest, and some of the boulders come to life and start coming at you, that's a different that's a different vibe. Like it depends on the that context. is true. That is true. Anything in a dungeon is suspect immediately. Yeah, and uh, definitely, like there's got to be some sort of Geneva Convention for like underground dungeon warfare where simply being in a dungeon kind of you waive your rights. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And cause dungeons are such, I guess depending on like how the dungeon exists in the world, but there's such artificial environments where it's like, okay, well you built this and filled it full of traps and, and little, little guys that want to kill me to like prevent me from getting something at the bottom here. So there's a whole, you know, yeah, I feel like there's there's um kind of a social contract in going into a dungeon. It's like this is a hostile environment. We're we're adversaries if I'm coming into your dungeon. Yeah. I'm gonna close my eyes and swing my arms, and if you get in the way, that's your own fault. Yeah. But if they're just outside, like on a hilltop and they're all serene, they look like like little Celtic gods. Like they're of a piece with Stonehenge, or I guess they're most like the uh, the heads of Easter Island. Yeah, but I'm like, the, yeah, like Stonehenge though. Like if you find a stone circle somewhere in some prominent place, you know, of some standing stones, some of some kind, and like one of them, like gets up and waves waves to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely some druid shit right there yeah and that's more that feels like then then you get into possibly like studio ghibli territory yeah or something maybe not i don't know there's just something very like uh peaceful and kind of reassuring about that about like these uh kind but not overly saccharine they're not overly sweet you know like they're they're still uh they'll get you yeah if it comes to it but they seem like just at one with nature which they sort of are by being yeah. rock people but it's um they're all, they're kind of unique i think in the monster manual as like a perfect example of that because even elementals are like controlled or they're not really supposed to be there yeah they're from another plane but these these are of the material plane yeah they have to be touched by the plane of elemental earth or brought by a spellcaster but they seem very at home still yeah and their whole like uh the whole thing about like because they are like made of stone, they don't need to like eat or sleep or anything like that and can just like just sort of exist yeah. um for an indeterminate amount of time. That they're very you know, it's it's just like they just they're 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 around, you know, they're guarding something, but most of the time they're just they're 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 just there to be, you know? They're just vibing. Yeah. It's kinda reminds me of um have you seen or anyone who's listening, uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Yes. So you know that part where there are rocks. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably a good chunk of being a Gilab to her is like I'm just gonna be a rock for a hundred years, you know. And just existing. Yeah. 
just be see what's see what's next it's funny you, you just mentioned how they don't eat but in all there's a bunch of different versions even within editions that like could never really settle on what their whole deal was like if they eat if they just vibe on pure energy or if they uh like how they get around so we'll get into it now oh yeah so like I said, they they turned up in 1982. They were first in a set of monster cards, set number two in uh, May 1982. And what is it? Somebody named Harold Johnson oversaw the monster cards project. And the new creatures were submitted by various members of TSR's design department. And Michael P. Price is the designer responsible for the Galeb Dur. Um, so I found an, like a paraphrased interview with him, which is like pretty rare. I don't, it's kind of hard to like actually track down who made what, uh, in a direct way. The information's out there somewhere, but like hard to keep track of stuff that happened in the eighties. But this guy Price left TSR in 1983. He went on to become a video game designer retired in 2010 and now he's a digital artist and he did an interview with uh encyclopedia sorry this uh monster encyclopedia article so his goal in developing the galeb dirt was to explore a creature that could naturally blend into surrounding terrain uh, and he had inspiration from a bunch of different sources, including an episode of the original Star Trek series called The Devil in the Dark. And I've seen this one, and it's freaky, especially uh, when I was a kid. Spock mind melds with a Horta, who is a silicon-based life form oh, that yeah. looks like a big, gory uh, pizza pocket explosion. Yeah, I remember this one. You know this one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Two. Right, Monsters! <laughs> so there's this thing that's been attacking, it's been attacking people and like swallowing people, but it's a miscommunication. There's like a, as, as with many things in Star Trek, it's not because of um, innate, hus- innate evil. It is a misunderstanding. So uh, Price, he liked the idea that communication with a creature might not be straightforward, but that the information a D&D creature might be able to share would have value to adventurers. So the idea was, as ancient rock creatures, the Galebdur could fossilize all of their accumulated knowledge to be uncovered by astute players who take the time to communicate with them. So this is why the 5th edition one has this thing about how it can communicate uh, is higher than average or high, higher intelligence than other elemental type creatures. Another major influence, which I thought of um, more quickly, which I thought of like right when I was reading it, is that uh, of Tolkien's Ents is influenced yeah. by Tolkien's Ents and the relationship that G- the Galeb Dur have with stone is modeled on the relationship Ents have with trees. There is also a influence from the sandworms in Dune as. Price wanted them to instill a similar sense of mystery and danger when they were encountered. So the, uh, oh yeah, we'll get into the, the, the name here too. So Price, he liked the foreboding sound of Khazad Doom from Lord of the Rings and the sense of power evoked by Muad'Dib, the Fremen name adopted by Paul Atreides in Dune. So his objective 
was just based was coming up with a two syllable one syllable cadence name for the rock creature his french ancestry helped him settle on dur as the second word since dur is french for hard so it is based on something i forgot about that cool um Price also wanted a name that felt like it could be Gaelic or Nordic and eventually settled on Galabdur as being sufficiently unknown and mysterious. I mean, it's a good name. Like, on that criteria, I think it, like, succeeds as a name based on what kind of name it was supposed to be, so. Absolutely, yeah. It takes, I think he achieved his design goals and it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Because, like, my, before I knew that, the name like Galab Dur. I was like, that sounds it already sounds like the name of something ancient. Like it sounds like a uh like an old, a very old Welsh concept or like a place somewhere that doesn't like it it it, it, it like it 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 does it sounds like something that already exists and is old, like it has that vibe. Uh mm-hmm. so great, great job. Agreed. Yeah. And I like it because, you know, we we're both uh, fairly nerdy and we we like our secondary worlds but it can often ring really hollow when you try to come up with like new language conventions so whenever you're doing yeah. that it is a it is a crutch but it is a uh understandable and uh totally fine one to steal from tolkien if you're gonna do yeah. it <laughs> and if you're gonna if you're gonna like um use the idea of invented language to sort of imply even larger world building than you've actually set out to create, you cannot have better examples than Dune and Tolkien yeah. for doing that. You know, like, like if you may as well be inspired by anybody for like implied world building. As much as Tolkien actually does go into the details, and you know, there's there's that like maps and appendices and Dune books and stuff, but like still with any world building, there's more implied world building than actual nuts and bolts world building. I think when it's any good, kind of like how a landscape painting. What's really beautiful about it is it implies the whole world beyond the frame, right? So yeah. that, that's kind of what you, that's what I want world building stuff to do. And like, it, uh, so great with it, with just the name Gelabdur. I'm like, yeah. cool. So that's that. That sounds like yeah. You may as well stand on the the shoulders of those giants of literature, yeah. For your for your little silly rock guy in a game, because then it's way more evocative, and you already make a connection. To things people have probably already read, but in yeah. a way that isn't like you're not totally ripping them off. You're just ripping off the sound and the feeling rather than any particular point. Yeah, and I, I really like the idea. I was just thinking of like them being associated with druids too, and druidic is supposed to be a secret language, and so you could have this whole thing where like, okay, no, the name of these rock guys, Caleb Duhor, that's the one druidic phrase it's made its way into common usage and so because it it sounds like the way i would imagine druidic sounding right yeah that's a good point you never see uh like what uh what the druid language is i guess you don't really see what most of the D languages are and you just like usually when i'm running a game it's just like you don't understand this character do you have infernal or do you have undercommon or whatever <laughs> yeah i've i though i've talked to people that um Whenever they encounter an elf, uh, they use French as Elvish. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, but yeah, that actually just stands. Also, it kind of works. Yeah, that I, makes I sense because like you could have you could have like uh, high elf be like Parisian French, and then wood elf is like Quebecois. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, and there's also like uh, other languages, like thieves can't. Like in a in a not another D and D podcast, the way they did thieves can't was just being like really unnecessarily like cagey and vague. You know, so it's like so. Uh, what we need is, uh, you know, if there was a potential to like maybe um, find something, perhaps in a certain set of dimensions that looks like this in an area near or in the general. You just like you you, you <laughs> add so many qualifiers that make it so vague that it, you have like so many layers of deniability that that's what that's how they did thieves can't. Is just like yeah, yeah. If you're if you were like I don't know. Um, trying to do a drug deal over the phone, you think the phone is tapped, so you just need to make sure that you have something your lawyer can point to. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's, that's like the the kind of idea of the thieves can't. So there's different ways you can depict languages, I think. Yeah, but having druidic sounds like sort of made up Welsh works. <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent. The first edition, where they really look like they look like stones, like like. They look like a piece of uh, Stonehenge just got up and started walking around. So they first appeared in that card set, and the picture of it is just—it's just a big rock with a face in the middle, covered in moss, and two legs. There's no arms. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> and they are described as eight to twelve foot tall boulder, and has a rocky appendages that act as hands and feet, but the picture only has feet. It is ponderously slow. It only moves. Uh, half has a half human walking speed but they're very intelligent they live in rocky or mountainous areas groups of up to four of them are occasionally encountered together when encountered they are in a lair 15 percent of the time and may have accumulated up to a dozen gemstones perhaps a miscellaneous magic item or potion as treasure so this is uh ad and d and they're just set up as like some crazy monsters that you might have to fight to get their stuff they have the they are neutral in alignment, and it isn't clear why they you might come into combat with them other than um, you just want their stuff. But they have a two, uh, they have a stomp attack which scales according to their size or hit die, and they can cast a handful of earthy spells uh, once per round, as if they were twentieth level magic users. Damn. And they have the ability to animate one or two nearby boulders, much like a treant controls trees. The text attributes this ability to the fact that Galebdur can feel the earth power in the rocky areas they inhabit. So they, yeah, originally definitely more of like a ent, but for rocks. Yeah, totally. Which is kind of cool. I mean, the thing I like about ents is that they're tree herders, and they're just like extremely slow. Yeah. Whereas boulders, uh, rocks don't live, like they don't eat, and they don't grow necessarily. They actually. I think the opposite, right? They like are subject to entropy and yeah, they splitting erode off. They over erode time and split, and then the only way that they could grow is if they like sunk in deeper in the earth, where they get like melted and fused together. And then, but then the turn—that's a different kind of rock after that. Yeah. So this yeah. actually kind of more tragic if you want to look at it as like they're if they love their rocks. And they're hurting them in the same way, but they just can't do anything as they watch, like wind and rain slowly destroy. Yeah, all their rock so, like, herd they... over thousands of years. Yeah, because it's a different sort of perspective on ent- entropy, then, right? Because like, as because I'm kind of thinking about like if you had like a rock guy, it'd be um, 
sort of the difference between the like the role that entropy has in life like plants and animals and like the life life that you see on earth is like we are leveraging entropy to get access to energy and so we're like speeding it up in one little place that we can slow it down somewhere else um and and there's a a kind of dynamic dimension to that right like as long as we we have a, a the sun like a giant source of energy going we can sort of keep it going right but if you're a rock guy there's not that capacity to grow but at the same time you don't have the sort of like you're not as fragile as like a fleshy little guy like us right so Mm -hmm. you sort of it's it's slower but it's more inevitable because there's no like loophole that you can you can leverage to like reverse entropy locally even though it's you know increasing everywhere else no matter what you're you're just on pace with like the background increase of entropy just like slow increase of disorder might take like thousands millions of years you know like there are parts of the uh canadian shield i think that are older than life on earth right but um theoretically at least uh life on earth could make a spaceship and go somewhere else and live in a dyson sphere and kind of exist as long as there's stars but that rock's eventually going to turn into dust so there's a different perspective on time and entropy i think if you're a rock guy damn dude (laughs) (laughs) you just cracked this wide open (laughs) <laughs> I've been reading um, this book called Existential Physics by Sabina Hassenfelder, and there's, there's a there's um, some great bits in there about how, like, the only way that we can measure time, like, the only reason time goes in one direction other instead of the other direction, is like statistical likelihood. Because if you stir some cream into some coffee, you could there's a chance you could stir it. And then all the molecules would end up on one side if they're coffee and the other side if they're cream. But like that's really statistically unlikely. Usually you just make a mess and things get all mixed together and smushed and messy. And because it's more likely for things to get random, like a bunch of random different places that end up all in the same place, that's why time goes one direction. So like time is just a statistic. It's just more likely that it goes forward than backwards. And that would be way more obvious to you if you were a rock guy, I think. Oh, a hundred percent. That's because this is the kind of stuff you would eventually think of if you just sat for a thousand years. Yeah. You think this is what they're doing? This is like what Galeb do because they're just average intelligence, but these are like, I think if a person of average intelligence sat down for a thousand years and just contemplated. Oh yeah. I, I, I think so many like, um, famous philosophers were just people not actually smarter than any other average person they just like had the opportunity to like just like sit and think about stuff for a while yeah whether it's because they were like were you're like descartes and you're filthy rich and so you can just like hang out and do that or if you're um spinoza and you got to work all day as a lens grinder but you got time to think about stuff while you're doing that you know yeah or Kant, who was like a mama's boy wasn't he? Yeah, Mama's boy who walked the exact same route every day. People tie yeah. their watches to him. <laughs> Man, that's great. This is a good personality too for a Galeb Dur. They should be like a philosopher, like a blue collar philosopher. You know, like yeah. you ever work at a factory and there's a guy, and he's like, you know, <clears throat> whoever wants to be in charge, all they want is I, don't know, I, I can't like riff a 
profound thing out of nowhere that like a in, in like a, a voice but there's that that's the whole trope of, trope of person you know oh yeah like for sure i think they're yeah. especially um prevalent today with um just podcasts or like the i hate to keep talking about him but it's i find it really funny that like joe rogan effect oh yeah of like in this example of the blue collar guy you'll be like I don't know, you'll be in the dish pit at a restaurant or something, and then the, the dishwasher will be like, hey, do you think we're in a simulation? <laughs> you're yeah. like, I don't know, are yeah, we? That, and they're like, yeah, totally. yeah, yeah, we are. It's most likely. <clears throat> so it's kind of what I think a, a Gail Abdur would be. So after uh, the initial introduction of Galeb Dur in AD&D, they start getting... This is where things get split off with, like, what what's their deal, actually? In the Temple of Elemental Evil, there are two Galeb Dur, and the description uh, gives them a glimpse of their attitudes, and we learn that they have little patience but are generally only hostile to those who feed on stone or gems. So they are opposed to mineral eaters and they are willing to provide aid in return for information about uh, offenders. So in this version, they have little patience, which is kind of a funny thing for a rock guy. (laughs) And they want to beat up like whatever monsters eat minerals, which I guess is a, I think the Zorn do that oh yeah but i've never really like i've always found it kind of uninteresting the ecologies within the elemental plane of earth you read enough bestiaries and enough D, and you you get into like 
these creatures from the elemental plane of earth eat minerals and that's like as far as we've come <laughs> yeah and it's not like terribly interesting because then you're just like describing organic life but then switching the substance around you know <laughs> yeah it's like no this yeah. is different and cool because these are rock tigers that hunt rock people you know and it's like okay well so they're made of rocks instead of uh flesh but it's the same thing okay I don't yeah know. exactly it's you know it makes it's kind of funny in a way but it's also like you're kind of limiting yourself yeah um there was a magazine called polyhedron and in that there was an adventure called needle which was later published uh in a standalone form part of that story takes place on the moon of the pc's homeworld, and the inhabitants of that moon include galeb dur were able to inhabit both the air-filled tunnels and the airless surface of the moon, and there they have adapted to lunar life, which is pretty... I think that's great, especially for, like, an early adaptation of the idea. Oh, yeah. I also... I love the idea of, like, so you got your fantasy world, but it's also just, like, a planet, and, like, the moon is, like, a vacuum, but, like, putting fantasy stuff on like a moon that acts like a regular moon like it's a hard vacuum there's like intense radiation so you'd have to be a rock person to yeah. like, live up there or have some kind of magical spacesuit and how do you even get up there teleportation magic maybe but you can teleport up there with like i don't know dimension door or something but then uh careful because <laughs> you can't actually live up there like i i don't know and that that there could be like a moon kingdom but they've it's it's all it takes like special equipment and magic to like live up there but it's not sci-fi it's still fantasy i think there's this stuff you can do there especially with gilab dehur you know yeah cuz they are um they're kind of to me representative of like the natural energy or the natural animism of the earth expressing yeah. itself and it's interesting to then have them show up on the moon because it's like we think of we're so uh like earth-centric in our thinking yeah that to then see them on the moon as like their own doing their own thing completely separate it really opens up your idea yeah. of like what the what is possible in the cosmos what's totally. what's actually going on in nature because it's like the the moon itself has a power and its own energy and its own ecosystem that we aren't a part of but these creatures who are like of the the rock of the moon itself indicate that there's a lot more going on yeah it's like why would nature stop at earth's atmosphere isn't the rest of the universe nature too you know yeah yeah makes you think which if you were like um cuz i know there's a circle of circle of stars druids imagine mm -hmm. like a druid but the aspect of nature that they're like attuned with is outer space like asteroids yeah. and and gas giant planets and uh they have access to some kind of magical sort of telescope and they just like essentially they're it's like the magical aspects of uh of astronomy right like not astrology but like they're like the the sort of environment that they're attuned to is I, I don't know this i think there's something there there is it it uh, it might risk 
destroying the entire house of cards that the uh, that fantasy is built on. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> because uh for a couple of reasons. One, I think usually like space is reflected in fantasy. It's been sort of turned into a Cthulhu thing. Yeah. Of uh unknowable cosmic horror. Yeah, or it's the astral plane and uh yeah. you're doing a spell jammer thing. But yeah. Yeah. But once you start breaking it down into something that is actually knowable, then you start getting into like, well, why why are we still wearing leather? <laughs> if like we can now understand <laughs> yeah. like all these movements of the planets. I mean, I guess that ship has sailed a long time ago with all kinds of other magical stuff, but yeah. like But there could be you could even be like um you know, like what if you're uh like so you're you you're you're the wizard or the druid or whatever type of like magical intelligence you know adventurer and like you know this aspect of reality you're like galileo or something like you know this stuff that nobody else does doesn't mean everybody believes you though right yeah that's right yeah there's no infrastructure to like implement your ideas necessarily yeah you could be like a, a like a um a uh you know, alchemist, artificer, and like I invented penicillin, penicillin, but nobody will believe me. No one, yeah. no one will use it. No one will believe me. And uh, there's like a dragon trying to eat me. There's a dragon trying to eat me. Um, I can't get anybody to believe me about germ theory. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I like the idea of a of like a dorky astronomer, druid. I don't know why they have to be dorky. I just. I gotta take it easy on scientists. <laughs> uh, there was another Galeb door in in Needle. There's one in particular named Caleb, who is initially hostile, annoyed by the sounds the intruding adventurers are making. But if they communicate with him, possibly using tongues because they have no language in common, he becomes quite chatty. And his animated boulders also have names: Thugga and Thuggy. So again, interesting point of um, the the difficulty of communication and communication being the key to an encounter. Whereas like this would be hostile, except that now if you can communicate somehow, in this case using a magic spell, yeah, uh, it's no longer a hostile situation. Right, yeah, because on the sap block, they only speak Terran. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's definitely... Um, Something that you should do and is like halfway implied in the in the text, which is a pattern and sort of one of the points of this podcast is like drawing out these ideas is like they might is like a passing reference to how they communicate. But like, let's make it explicit. They don't speak common and it's unlikely that anyone people don't usually take Terran as a, a as a language yeah. in my experience. Usually this can be solved with a magic spell in this case, but then that's cool because then you get rewarded for having that spell ready and it's a neat thing that you've done. But you could also get into like a crazy, that episode of Star Trek Next Generation, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. Do you have any idea what I'm saying to you? <laughs> <laughs> was that the one we were... Uh, no, that was the one I, I was talking earlier. about earlier. That was the one? original okay. series. Yeah. Yeah. It's the it's a sort of thing that if you would instantly know it if you were more if you were more familiar with uh, Next Generation yeah. I think, but it is a famous episode famous among people who know it already. Uh, it's it's one of my favorites. It is 
I think regarded as one of the best episodes of the next generation where uh, the captain gets stuck on a planet with another alien humanoid who was also stuck there, but they can't, they, they share a grammar, but they don't share a vocabulary. Is this the one where there's the language that's entirely based on references to other? Yes. That's yes. The, and that's the other yes. thing is that the guy yeah. can only speak in uh metaphor. So he's like, yeah. He's like, so what's going on? Like, how are we going to deal with this? And the other guy's like, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. <laughs> like, he can't, yeah. he can't like, he, say anything else. And then the whole episode now. is just uh, Picard figuring out, like, what he means. And it's like, it's such a triumphant uh, episode. Yeah. And it's just one of the best works of, like, televised science fiction, I think. So you could watch that episode and then... I forget what the actual name of it is. It might be called Darmok and Jalad or something, but uh, you won't have trouble looking it up and it would be a great basis for an encounter like this. Yeah. And it kind of it kind of reminds me of the movie Arrival, too, if you've seen that. Okay, one. yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, in that, like, we've got to translate the alien language. We don't have a whole lot of reference points. So, like, where do you, where do you start? Yeah, you could get really yeah. weird with this if you wanted. This might bore the shit out of some players <laughs> who just want to attack something. <laughs> yeah. But you could get really weird because the cool thing about Arrival was they don't even have a verbal language, right? It was like they had a, what was it, a written language? Yeah, they had that ink they could suspend in air. And it was yeah. like these circles within circles. And it was a and language. And it would move, that, right? Yeah. It would move because it was a language that... Um, was four dimensional and so once you understood the grammar of the language you uh could see forward and backward in time yeah yeah easier just to cast speak tongues but yeah it's true but but speaking tongues that's that's a, that's another great thing because here's here's a little dm tip i think because there's a lot of spells in dungeons and dragons that are hyper situational and are like they do a really cool thing but it depends entirely on the game master setting up a pretty specific situation where it's cool to have that spell. So like maybe occasionally like take a look at your players spell lists, what they have prepared or just even just what they could prepare and like give them a reason to, to, to take that weird niche, super situational spell, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. Cause I usually for like in an effort to discourage um taking on more work as a dm i usually like do not look at anything on my players sheets yeah. or if i describe that they get an item or something like i do not keep track of it if they forget they have it then great <laughs> yeah. but like that would be good especially for maybe newer players and you want to draw out things in the game for them to to use and yeah and think about that's that's a good idea yeah, it kind of reminds me of the principle of like uh, shoot the monk, if you know about this one, because monks have the ability to catch projectiles and throw them back at the person that shot at them. So like, that's cool. Um, but like, if you're a dungeon master, then you should probably you should shoot at the monks because they got the monks have this cool class ability. They want to be able to yeah, use it, so they can so, use like, it. Give people opportunities to do the cool stuff that their character yeah. can do. So if you're like a a very utilitarian like problem solving wizard um who uh can like do all these outside of combat things give them give them puzzles they can they can they can use their magic to to to, to solve you know yeah and then justify it, it yeah through the the 
the NPC or enemy, like what yeah. they're thinking. Because they don't know a monk can catch a bullet. Or even if yeah, they totally. do, they might have panicked in that moment and they're just trying to like hoping he fucks up. Yeah. In Dungeon Magazine number 73, there's an uh, encounter which ignores an ecology article that claims Galabdur don't sleep because the adventurers are required to awaken a deeply sleeping Galabdur by shouting loudly. I don't know why that's important, but that's what they wanted you to do. And there's also an adventure called Acts of the Dwarvish Lords that has a detailed encounter with a Galabdur who is feuding with a group of goblins. His singing is described as sounding like a soft, melodious landslide, which is pretty cool. And he keeps gemstone treasures hidden in his body. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> like jewelry would be like a gold vein going through your body. That's cool. Yeah. Then, then that's when you get like players talking about like, do we crack this sucker open? Are we good? Are we evil? What's going that on That is here? asking for trouble, putting any precious material inside of your body. Oh, for sure. In a yeah. World where there are adventurers. Yeah. It's a classic. There is an adventure called Castle of the Blind Sun in Dungeon Magazine number 49, because previous articles said that they ate rocks, despite that earlier thing I said about how they hate mineral eaters. But there's other articles that say they eat rocks. But then this one, Castle of the Blind Sun, they only need to maintain contact with earth power to sustain themselves. So this and this one, they just vibe. And it's interesting, the difference between like, how people conceive of a monster ecology where it's like people who are more uh have more taxonomic thinking maybe or more literal mindedness require well if it's a being it has to eat something and if the rock guy maybe it eats rocks yeah. rock things and then you have this more like hippie version where it just needs to like maintain contact with earth power whatever that is which is more of a 90s idea and sure enough i think this is made in the 90s yeah <laughs> it just gotta just gotta hang out on a ley line you know yeah for sure listen to Enya that adventure revolved around a castle that becomes solid during a solar eclipse and this occlusion of the sun causes the Galebdur to become temporarily dormant which is, I think a riff on the uh, the trolls in the hobbit turning to yeah. stone in the sunlight so this is like a, a thing where they're already stone guys but instead of turning into creatures they just animate and remain stone guys and then in third edition they finally look like rocky human beings but with arms but not much else is different they look like rather than like mostly a boulder body they have like a humanoid body and then in fourth edition like many other creatures um the things that they were normally associated with are split up arbitrarily between different entries to better make a uh, like a skirmish game, so you have a Galeb Dur that throws rocks and a Galeb Dur with a melee guy and a spellcaster, but they all kind of just split up the things that a Galeb Dur could already do before. Um, but they really go in a different direction with the background of them. So there's a confusing line that starts by noting that all dwarves were long ago slaves to the giants and titans. And then continues with the following sentence. More than one variety of dwarf failed to escape during the initial revolution, including the Galeb Durs, which means that apparently Galeb Dur are a type of dwarf, despite there being no mention at all of this relationship anywhere else in the monster entry. And except for, there's a player's handbook racial description for dwarves 
where it says that a Galeb Dur are indeed a form of corrupted dwarf, tracing their origins back to the days of dwarven servitude to the giant races. But Michael B. Michael P. Price, the Galeb Dur's creator, is not a fan of this interpretation, noting that the idea that Galeb Dur are some type of corrupted dwarf is, quote, completely arbitrary and makes a mockery of the entire history of this creature, end quote. <laughs> I love I love somebody that stands by their creations, you know? Absolutely. I love yeah. yeah. This is why we have this podcast. Like I want to let these people yeah. fight. Yeah. And I think it is true. I don't think it makes any sense. And then you get into like weird racial corruption. Like and like totally. stay away from that. Like, Just Which is like the that's like I don't know. I feel like that's the weakest point in Tolkien's world building is like all these some of the races are corrupted versions of other ones is like, come come on, you know? <laughs> well, in the, in the elves case, if you consider them as like angels, yeah, if you consider them as well, more of their like idealistic, uh, representation, then it makes more sense, but that's also not that makes more sense. necessarily explicit. But then there's also like, yeah. And then there's also the bit about how like, um, I think trolls are corrupted ants in some way too. Yeah. I don't know. Well, and orcs That's, are corrupted elves as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Uh, but then, yeah. well, yeah, um, it, it gets muddied. It gets muddied. Yeah. I'm not the best. My uh, point is, that's not the point of inspiration <laughs> yes. to take from Tolkien. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's no need to, to do this. But this, again, this is one of the things that happen. We talk about a lot. They, like, need to interlace the ecologies of these things and just create like connections where there is no need for one just to like make it seem like a a, th- a living breathing world but as usual i'm more f- in favor of letting things stand mythically on their own yeah speaking of uh we'll get into the mythological background of these guys which i don't think there is m- there isn't anything direct especially since we got that interview with the creator like we kind of broke down why he he did what he did he just liked the idea of like creatures that looked like the terrain they were in the examples i could find there's actually very few rock people in myth or at least uh easily (laughs) easily googled so there is a um incan and pre-incan story about the first people who were made by viracocha in the beginning, there was only darkness. Then Viracocha came from Lake Titicaca and formed the earth and the skies. He then made animals and a group of giant people. These giant people did not please Viracocha. He didn't like them because they were thoughtless and unkind. The way of the giant people angered the gods so much that he destroyed them all. I think this is a explanation for the mountains, I believe, is commonly accepted. There's no way to tell for sure, but um, very often dead giants are mountains in these kinds of stories. Uh, he also destroyed all the animals and every other living thing. Just really wasn't happy with that batch. <laughs> he did uh, continue to create parts of the world, and with a wave of his hand and word, he created day by making the sun rise from an island in Lake Titicaca. He created the moon and the stars, and he set each form of light on its own path. He created streams and rivers he made and moved mountains and valleys. He made animals to replace the ones he had destroyed. Um, He first made birds to fly in the sky and fill the air with song. He gave a different song to each type of bird. And he makes people once again. He uses stone to form men, women, and children. He then paints them as he wanted them to look, with some of the stone women pregnant. 
Other stone women were already caring for young children in cradles. He painted on the clothing that each person would wear, and he fashioned them as they would be in life. He then created a stone village for the stone people to live in. He divided them into groups, each with their own food and language and their own songs, and he directed all of them to sink underground and ordered them to stay there until he or one of his helpers called them. And then he got his helpers to walk in different directions from Lake Titicaca, and when they arrive in their own land, call forth the stone people. So the helpers did as they directed, and then one by one, these groups of stone people came up from the ground. And, I com- and then he said to them, I command human beings to come out of these stone figures. Live on this land, live here, and have your children. And so the stone people turned into human beings under the direction of sort of like god helpers in these different regions. There's not much direct connection to the Galeb Dur, other than you have like a primordial source, whereas the Galeb Dur are like elemental spirits. The people in this story were originally kind of rocks given spirit, but there's no treasure or hurling boulders, so there can't be too much connection. There's also uh, the rock giants. So have you ever heard of the Book of Enoch? Yes. Cool. So this is an article I got from biblicalarchaeology.com. So buckle up. Uh, I'll just read the bit of this article. Who or what are the rock giants in Noah, the movie? Which, uh, have you seen that movie? No, I have not. It, uh, it was a big old movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's got like an action poster. It was released in theaters. Big movie. Darren Aronofsky. But like it just confounded most viewers and yeah. critics you know I, think. I never i never saw it with sound but it, when i was what? when i worked at hmv it was <laughs> amazing playing on there's like tvs in there that would occasionally just like play a movie that was uh for whatever reason like either a new release or like they wanted to promote it whatever studio so i i looked up at times and saw parts of that movie with no sound <laughs> incredible yeah well, this might shed some light and help you maybe right. better understand it. Okay. In the Book of Enoch, the Book of Enoch is an apocryphal book um, concerning details of the flood narrative and elaborating on what was revealed to Enoch in heaven. I don't know who Enoch is. I'm not going to get into that right now. But uh, in this expansion of the flood account, we are introduced to the Watchers who are fallen angels who mated with human women and produced offspring called the Nephilim. Nephilim. Nephilim, yeah. The Nephilim. Um, the heroes that were of old, warriors of renown of Genesis 6-4. They are just uh, commonly referred to as giants. The Book of Enoch states that the Watchers shared secret knowledge with their sons that led to the corruption of the world. The giants ravaged the earth, filling it with destruction and evil. They depleted the world of food and terrified mankind, and these actions triggered the flood. When Enoch confronts the Watchers about their impending doom, they implore him to intercede on their behalf. He agrees, but to no avail. The Watchers' petition is not granted. They and their sons are not able to escape their punishment, the flood. Returning to our earlier question, who are the rock giants in Noah? They're called fallen angels and are based loosely on the watchers we see in the book of Enoch. So these rock people are actually fallen angels 
Again, not really connected to yeah. Galeb doors. We understand it, except that they are spirits from uh, some other place. But in this, it is a, I guess the D&D equivalent would be some sort of astral plane or some sort of domain of a particular god. But yeah, we separate these ideas in D&D, gods from nature or the elemental planes. Giants are a whole thing. There are, there are people alive currently posting on Twitter about the existence of giants, giant angels used in yeah. uh, militaries in the Middle East. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Enoch it, was yeah? Noah's great-grandfather. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, he's family, Nephilim. he'll know. The uh, hearing that story um, makes it. I guess this is always like kind of obvious, but like how much of the plots of the Diablo games is lifted directly from, uh, uh, like apocrypha, wide, like Christ- Christian, yeah, yeah, apocrypha, apocrypha just like yeah. uh, Christian um, mythology in general, because like literally, just the apocrypha of the Abrahamic religions, really, yeah, I, in general, yeah, the the essential plot. Uh, it's it's great like material to draw from and like literally you're playing a nephilim in the diablo games that's why oh really <laughs> yeah you're, you're that's why that. you're so much more powerful that than all the, like the randos because sense. you yeah. are descended from the offspring between demons and angels who decided not to fight anymore amazing and then they created uh which is, is essentially the material plan to be like we're gonna hide this from heaven and hell so that they it doesn't get caught up in the war and then uh, hell is like, well, hey, hang on a second. We want to take What's over. What's this Earth. over here? Yeah, yeah. And then the angels are like, you can't have it. But we, 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 we're not going to intervene. And so, anyway, I don't need to go over the plot of the Diablo games, but it is, <laughs> it's very similar to, uh, much of the Book of Enoch, down to yeah. you are a Nephilim in those games. The Nephilim is definitely an idea that's permeated a lot of other fantasy. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, another rock myth involves uh, Rhea, who is born to the earth goddess Gaia and the sky god Uranus. Um, so she is one of their titan children, one of their 12 or 13, depending on the story. So Kronos, one of the youngest children, overthrows his father and becomes king of the titans in his place. And he takes his sister Rhea to wife. Gaia and Uranus tell Kronos that just as he had overthrown his own father and became ruler of the cosmos, he was destined to be overcome by his own child. So as each of his children was born, Kronos swallowed them. Rhea, with the help of Uranus and Gaia, devises a plan to save the last of them, Zeus, by giving uh, Kronos a stone wrapped in swaddling clothes, which he swallows quickly. And then they hide Zeus in a cavern on the island of Crete. Um, again, not a Galeb Dur. Huh. Unless, unless the Galeb Dur you meet is like, was swallowed by a god like 10,000 years ago and finally like made his way. That could be like a funny background story of like his last job. <laughs> like what was yeah. the, like his origin <laughs> story was he was a stone swallowed by a god in a convoluted cosmic drama. Yeah. That'd be oh man, because because like part of the 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 Galeb Dur thing is because you're a stone, you you can, like, 
you can have been alive for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, right? So, like, I like the idea of, like, uh, you know how some reptiles and birds will swallow some stones to help them digest stuff? I think they're mm-hmm. called gastroliths. You could mm-hmm. have just, like, spent some time as the gastrolith of some kind of cosmic being. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or even some, like, regular giant creature. But, like, yeah. I, I, I do, Spend like... a thousand years in the cosmic turkey. Yeah. Um, and then outside of like the myth of gods, you can look at the terracotta army as protectors made of stone. Yeah. But, um, I don't think there's an intention of like, like the stone soldiers aren't actually, weren't actually meant to be the protectors necessarily. There's kind of like a, more of a tribute. Yeah. And a grand show. I think there's we we kind of touched on it um earlier when we were talking about the um the Star Trek episode with the uh the silicon based life but mm-hmm. I think outside of mythology some of the inspiration could be some of the actual like theoretical astrobiology about like what silicon based life could be right cuz you sort of need um we need water and carbon for like the chemistry that makes life on earth work just because of the kinds of reactions that can happen, which is normally why people look for places with those elements to find what's what planets are going to maybe have life on them. But you can get like really, really similar chemical reactions with, uh, I think it's ammonia and like silica based like molecules instead of carbon based ones. And so if you had a planet with like oceans of ammonia and a bunch of basically sand everywhere, you could have that, that could evolve into life too. And if you imagine it, like a lot of the artist depictions are like a, a living rock, you know, with uh, mm-hmm. with um, ammonia veins, and um, I think I feel like that's been taken a lot of different directions in science fiction. But the idea of ammonia-based life is like it's about a hundred years old, if 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 not older, um, just because we know the chemistry would work. Um, so I I don't know that 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 could be like a lot of the inspiration for like rock dudes that you see in modern fiction is like well yeah because there could be rock if there was silicon silica based life in the universe it kind of stands to reason that they would look like little rock guys of of one sort or another that'd be cool that's an interesting take on it because then instead of them being like a guardian of something else it's like they fell from the sky on a meteor or something and are now in this to them alien world yeah. And they've just like are sitting there maybe trying to find a way home or just dealing with this. And then they would attract maybe druids and worshipers who like want to gain knowledge of the outside nature of the world by studying them or wizards would be studying them or something. And they're yeah. just these. And like, and like the druids and wizards could, you could sort of have it be like, well, what? Because they might not have an idea of like what another planet is, right? But if there if there was a way to travel to other, another planet, and there was a planet that was full of silica-based life, and you're a you're a you're a regular wizard, you're a regular druid from like the material plane. You look at that and think like this has got to be, uh, the material plane of like the the elemental plane of Earth, right? <laughs> so like something from that world, uh, or like even stones with like the living ammonia goo of whatever it is in it like that could be you know like how else would you interpret that as like uh you know a druid or a wizard that are like yeah no no this is this is stuff touched from the other plane you know yeah 
you don't even have to explain that <laughs> to the players, but I like that as an interpretation of like, kind of like how um, when ancient when uh, medieval people found fossils of dragons, fossils of dinosaurs rather, it's like these are dragons. This is what these are, you know? Yeah. This proves a whole element of our like cosmically insane under our our, our, under our like bizarre understanding of the cosmos. Yeah. This validates it. Yeah. Of course, you could you could go down whole like ancient aliens interpretations of that line of thinking but i don't know in a in a tabletop game it's cool yeah in a tabletop game it's like possible maybe this rock yeah. dude yeah. was hanging out and did help someone build a pyramid yeah outside of these um in uh, in popular media i thought of two in particular um one is the thing from the fantastic four. Oh yeah yeah who is, I don't think he's, there's no, like, metaphysical philosophy behind being a rock, I don't think. Like, he's not connected to Earth power, I don't think. Yeah. But it's I more of, like, a symbolic uh, hardening of his emotions and him dealing with the fact that he's, like, an unlevel, he's an uh, an ugly monster. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it might depend on who's writing Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. For, I just, I'm not like as familiar. Is, yeah. But the one, the stuff I remember is that he's just like, he's just a big goon. Yeah. Who has to deal with being a big goon. And he uh, has to be tough. And he has to learn to like be okay with not having the looks. <laughs> you know? So he has to insulate his, his emotions and body to deal with it. Yeah, there's no there's no hippie angle, but there probably is in some story. But that's I don't think the main thrust of Ben Grimm. <laughs> ben Grimm, I forget that's oh, yeah. man. <laughs> it just came to me. I forgot his name until just now. But yeah, Ben Grimm, good name. Um, and then the most one to one connection I think is the rock biter from the Never Ending Story. Oh yeah, because he's kind of like a melancholic spirit of the of the earth and even even though he's like an immovable force even he is susceptible to the power of the nothing yeah well there we are rocks relationship to entropy right yeah these hands these look like such like oh man these strong hands i couldn't hold on to them the nothing pulled them right out of my hands yeah it's really sad yeah and there's no there's no explicit like hippie earth power, but it, there is like the suggestion that the rock biter represents the like power of nature itself, yeah. or the the ground, the very earth you stand on. Um, another example that comes to mind, I think, are the uh, I think they're called the Goron, the the rock people from the Legend of Zelda games. Okay, yeah, that rings a bell. They're rock people. They um, hang out in and around volcanoes. I think they might eat rocks. They definitely have the ability to curl up into a ball and roll places to get there yeah. faster. Yeah, that's important. Yeah. That's sort of like, I also dug into NeverEnding Story 3 has a bunch of baby rock men. Oh, man, I forgot there was a third one. <laughs> I've never seen it, but I saw a clip of the baby rock men yeah. and they're on tricycles set to a rendition of Born to be Wild, which I don't think is relevant to the any of the themes in my <laughs> ideas uh from the first one 
So yeah, I think the Galeb Dur is uh I didn't know much about them before I dug into this. Now I quite like them. Yeah, love a little put put some little rock guys in your next in yeah. your next game. Sprinkle them in, throw a little yeah. pepper on. Um next episode, we are getting into another rock guy, getting into the gargoyles. Yeah. And it hasn't happened yet, but fingers crossed it goes off without a hitch. We're gonna have a special guest someone qualified to talk about the conception of gargoyles for the purposes of a D&D game. Yeah. Hell yeah. Someone who's written about them. Um who helped sh- <laughs> I got to prepare what I say more. <laughs> so <laughs> stop iterating as I'm talking. But it is somebody who has written for D&D about gargoyles. So we look forward to that. Beyond that, I'm satisfied. Yeah, me too. Okay. Rock guys. Rock guys. Let him in. <laughs> Let him open up. Let the rock open guys up. in. What are you doing? Let him in. Take us away, Wes. All right, Chris and everyone uh, listening at home, monsters away. Monster Manual Mash is Christopher Lawson and Wes Grist. Edited by me, Chris Lawson. Find me on Twitter at Chris M. Lawson. Music by Wes, a.k.a. Elias. You can find more of his music on bandcamp.com slash Elias. That's numeral zero L-I-A-S. It's not a hacker thing, it's just what was available. Thanks to Sarah B. Milner for our logo. You can find her at Sarah B. Milner. Thanks to everyone listening and to everyone talking monsters on the Monster Manual Mash Facebook group, Monsters 2.